Over a million people are buried below New York's Potter's Field on Hart Island. Since 1980, 68,113 people have been buried on the island alone. Hart Island now hosts desolate abandoned buildings that were used for institutions, a lunatic asylum, a tuberculosis hospital, and a boys' reformery. But below the ground are several mass graves. Twice a day through a chain-link fence, a New York City morgue truck emerges onto the island delivering its passengers. Off the coast of the Bronx, in Long Island Sound, sits an island where 19th century ruins hold a dark, long history. Originally bought by the city in 1868 as a prison for Confederate soldiers of the Civil War, living inmates would share the land with the dead, and those inmates would surely join those in the ground not long after. Southern slave owners donated or sold the bodies of their slaves to medical schools. In the North, competing schools imported black bodies from the South in whiskey barrels. Potter's Fields, Almshouse Cemeteries, and African-American burial grounds were routinely ransacked as medical professors paid for corpses, no questions asked. Other bodies were diverted from morgues and the charity wards of urban hospitals. Burials began on the island at its northern tip in 1869. This 200-foot trench alone holds the bodies of 8,904 babies who died between the years of 1988 and 1999. Twice a week, inmates from Rikers are ferried over from the prison to the island, and as of 1989, they fill 500 feet of trenches a year, 15 feet wide, 8 feet deep. New York made it legal to pass the death penalty, but also dissection. The demand for cadavers in the early 19th century for medical education was still at a high, but the execution of felons was declining. Heart Island quickly became a place where people would toss away not just the unwanted living, but the unwanted dead. It was known for a long time that inmates of the prison on the island and then inmates from Rikers would stack bodies that either came to the prison or came to the island three bodies deep in trenches. Many people probably ask the same question I've had when I first encountered this story of mass graves. How is this allowed to happen? How has this happened for so long? And lastly, why does this happen? In short, families that could not afford to bury their dead, not least among a generation of African Americans who migrated north from Jim Crow South, would eventually be subject to a grave at Potter's Field. But also, the many people who died alone went unclaimed. Be it because of a fallout with family, they were a loner in life as it was, someone doesn't know they passed, a bureaucratic, long-winded legal event took place, or the expenses of death is too much to afford, people's bodies go unaccounted for. That being said, the unclaimed bodies are sent to Hart Island to be put somewhere. In the year 2000, 80 unclaimed bodies in Queens Medical School were sent to the island to be buried among the thousands of others. Known or unknown, their fate was the same. One such case follows the story of Gwendolyn Burke. After a lifetime of menial work, she died at the age of 89 and was sent to Hart Island to be buried. But before she could be put to rest, Albert Einstein College of Medicine claimed her as a cadaver and used her body for dissection for 13 months before she was interred in 2000. New York's guardianship statute carries files that bear the same names as people sent to Hart Island. Dozens of files can be identified and pulled one by one from courthouse storage. Few of those names are wealthy people, but most of those bodies are of poor individuals that went unnoticed or unclaimed. Of the 65,000 bodies buried on the island, in 1980, at least 52,000 people died in hospitals or nursing homes. 
Some died or were found elsewhere, including 275 locations through the city's transportation infrastructure. Others were washed up on shore in one of New York's rivers, creeks, bays, or other water features. On the bright side, if there ever was one, a lot of unclaimed bodies make the trip to Hart Island become subject to educational cadavers. Only a portion on the island, around 300 of the 600 out of the 1,500 annually, were ever actually medical specimens. Another person, Constance Mary Belly, who was a widowed bookkeeper with a jolly laugh and a love of riding city buses, had a rent-controlled apartment in the West Village and a burial plot in a Catholic cemetery before she was placed under a guardianship in 1999 at her landlord's initiative. She stated before her death that she was not debilitated when she was moved to a nursing home, but neighbors explained that her dementia had gotten rather bad. Four years, two guardians and two nursing homes later, Miss Maribelli died at 91. And despite her plot at St. John Cemetery in Queens, despite a $2,000 burial fund culled from her modest pension and preserved by court order, Miss Maribelli was among the last of the 137 bodies to be lowered into Trench 307 in February 2004. Recently, there has been an increase of stories for the people buried on the island. Unfortunately, so many of those stories have been lost due to vandalism in the abandoned buildings. But on HeartIsland.net, the Heart Islands Project has managed to gather many stories. The webpage features an interactive map where you can look at the island and get a count of how many people are buried in the plot. You can click on the plot and find a list with hundreds of names and read the stories that people have put up, be it friends, family, or anyone who had a connection to the person they found to be buried on the island, many people now don't go forgotten. The last person to mention includes Otakar Bosk. He died at the age of 80. Box was born May 11, 1898, in Rudolz, Romania. He emigrated to the United States in 1923, traveling from Hamburg, Germany, to England on the Accrington, from Southampton, England, to the U.S. on the USS Olympic. He applied for citizenship on April 30, 1942, in New York City. His petition was granted in the District Court of Miami, Florida on April 29, 1949. He gave his occupation as metal worker and died October 1st, 1983, and was buried on Hart Island. Up until recently, Hart Island has sat under the radar for a long time. Swept under the rug for its morbidity, the mass graves are something many people don't like to talk about. But with the newest viral pandemic, COVID-19, the use of Hart Island's mass graves has been increased yet again. For the most part, plots were dug for the forgotten and unclaimed. Today, it's used for the overflow of coronavirus deaths. New York City, being one of the hardest hit cities in our country, has been seeing an influx of death, so much so that the morgues are overflowing just as they did in 1918 during the Spanish flu. From 24 deaths a week to 24 a day, by April 13th, more than 10,000 people in the city had died from COVID-19, after daily deaths surpassed 700 for five days. Of those who perished from COVID-19, only New Yorkers whose bodies were not claimed by family members are being buried at Hart Island. National Geographic wrote a piece on the process ongoing with Hart Island. It's been the practice that every week, staff and eight inmates from nearby Rikers Island prison have come to carry out the burials, stacking coffins three deep in trenches, large enough to hold up to 162 for adults and 1,000 for infants and fetal remains. This practice has not changed since it started in 1869. 
The photos on their webpage depict pine boxes with numbers or names written heavy black marker. Due to a spike in coronavirus cases at Rikers Island, the city began hiring contract workers who wear hazmat suits to bury the dead. This isn't the first time the island has been used for epidemic or pandemic level deaths. The first time the island saw a high influx of bodies buried every day for a long period of time was when tuberculosis ran rampant through New York City. The first person buried on the Hart Island Cemetery in 1869 was Louisa Van Slyke, a 24-year-old who died of tuberculosis with no known family to claim her. The following year, when an outbreak of yellow fever tore through the city, people were quarantined on the island. It is said that this was done through the popular belief that bad air spread disease. Later, a hospital opened on the island for quarantined patients, after New York launched the country's first campaign to control the White Plague, as tuberculosis was known, then afflicting one in seven Americans. By the turn of the century swung around, illness was nothing new. In fact, it was common. But in 1918, 675,000 Americans died, and one-third of the world's population went with it. More people died of the flu than soldiers dying of battle in World War I. Doctors reported soldiers in battlefield hospitals bleeding from their ears and eyes, drowning in their own blood, blue from the lack of oxygen. What killed so many people was called the Spanish flu, but it didn't originate from Spain. Studies show it was caused by an H1N1 virus with genes of avian origin from the Far East. But while Spain was at war, they were not allowed to report on the flu. Reporting on anything that would result in anti-war efforts was against the law. Soldiers were deep in trenches in France during World War I, and no one was told that this mysterious flu was circulating in militia camps. Other locations were reporting an increase in soldiers' deaths from a mysterious illness in places like Fort Riley. The story goes that the fort had burned manure, and a yellow, smoky haze blocked out the sun. Two days later, army soldiers were reporting to medics, too many for the doctors to keep up with. It was thought that they were reacting to the bad air from the fire two days prior. Waking up with high fevers, coughs, and fatigue, soldiers were coming in, and by noon, there were 100 cases. By the end of the week, there were 500 cases. 48 soldiers died, and it was listed that the cause was pneumonia. No one reported anything else because it left as soon as it came. When the soldiers came home from war, they brought the flu with them. One such location slammed the worst was Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They had a wartime parade to celebrate the end of World War I, and 48 hours after the parade ended, the flu exploded in the populace, with over 14,500 people dying in Philadelphia alone. No one knew the treatment for this rapid-moving, deadly virus. Treatments ranged from enemas, whiskey, and bloodletting. There were no antibiotics at this point. More often than not, a person would wake up fine and by dinner that same day be dead. There were so many people dying at one point, morgues were overflowing and caskets were running out. New York City resorted to pine boxes and morgues could not fit them. There was no time to arrange funerals, so the city resorted to the island not far off its coast where so many had been buried before. One physician writes that patients with seemingly ordinary influenza would rapidly develop the most vicious type of pneumonia that had ever been seen. And later, when cyanosis appeared in the patients, it was simply a struggle for air until they suffocated. Another physician recalls that the influenza patients died struggling to clear their airways of the blood-tinged froth that sometimes gushed from their nose and mouth. The physicians of the time were helpless against the powerful agent of influenza. In 1918, children would skip rope to the rhyme, I had a little bird, its name was Enza, 
I opened the window, and influenza.